Hello, it's Felix, it's The Rep, Rugby's economic podcast. This is the show that looks at how money, power and politics have dominated the chasing of the egg-shaped ball up and down pitches since the 1800s. As an avid rugby fan and aspiring Alakadu, I've always had an interest in what's happening off the pitch as much as what goes on on it. With this podcast, our aim is to shine a floodlight on those challenges that rugby faces as a global sport and offer some suggestions on how they might be tackled. Last time out, we gave a good account of ourselves as we discussed how rugby makes money and the blaring contradictions the tradition and a lack of structure have left us with. Today, it's the return leg as we discuss the need, or not, for a global calendar in rugby. Spoiler alert, there's definitely a need. And we're going to play out what are the issues that need to be overcome to make this a reality. So pull that gum shield out of your sock, because we're going back on. So why do we need a global calendar anyway? Simply put, rugby needs the cash. Without thinking of expansion and global domination, the sport has been in a state of financial disarray, and the COVID-19 situation only makes things worse. You see, rugby's in this vicious cycle. It needs more money to run the game, which can be solved by playing more games. But that raises the challenges of player welfare. Rugby is a collision sport after all. To overcome the welfare concerns, rugby teams need to have bigger squads, which cost more money. And so the endless loop continues. Like your man down the bookies who needs to win the next race to break even for the day. And that's just to keep the lights on. When the International Rugby Board changed their name to World Rugby in 2014, they kind of shot themselves in the foot, writing a check their bodies couldn't cash. Realistically, the sport of rugby is played in little more than a handful of developed former colonies who have continued to prosper through their globalisation. But World Rugby have committed to growing the game in new markets, increasing the need to generate more cash to support developing unions. Today, World Rugby survives on the money generated by the Rugby World Cup. This funds the four years until the next one comes around, providing a significant revenue boost for the governing body. Revenue following the 2019 World Cup came in at £381 million, with about two-thirds of that being broadcasting or sponsorship revenues. However, given the pandemic and the challenges facing the unions, World Rugby has had to cough up £80-odd million of that just to keep the game afloat. This shifts the burden somewhat onto the top nations to support themselves so World Rugby can keep the game going in those developing unions we mentioned. Okay, so we get the need for money in the game, but what's the issue with having more premier matches to top up the coffers? Well, the rugby calendar is already chocka. In the Northern Hemisphere, the season is approximately 44 playing weeks long, not including knockout games or pre-season. Then there are a few of a limit on the number of games players can play per season, set at 35, but this is reduced to 30 for any current members of the England squad. This creates the tension we discussed last week between the clubs and the unions around player availability for the international windows in the autumn and Six Nations. For the top international stars of the game, the PRL clubs need to fork out large sums to attract them, only to have them stolen away to play for England for up to 9 weeks of the season. That's hard to justify if you're aching to win a trophy, or worse, in a fight against relegation. In the Southern Hemisphere, the initial go-it-alone attitude has created probably the most unsustainable competition in the world, Super Rugby. On paper it sounds great, professional franchises from three of the world's best rugby nations jetting around the world to compete against each other, when in reality it's a logistical and welfare nightmare. Let's use the example of South African franchise The Stormers from Cape Town. In the regular season, the Stormers need to fly a day or more to Australia or New Zealand to play one of their franchises. This comes at a significant cost to the teams, but also exposes the players to multiple bouts of jet lag throughout the season. Whilst they don't play as many games as the Northern Hemisphere, 
this jet lag more than levels the playing field on the toll it has on the bodies of the players. From a sustainable or green point of view, it's horrendous on the environment to be running a tournament like this. Alongside the Sevens World Series, it's doing nothing for World Rugby's commitment to sport for climate action. Commercially, it doesn't stack up either, as broadcast viewing numbers suffer as they face the realities of time zones. When the Stormers kick off against the Blues in Auckland or the Waratahs in Sydney, it's 8am or 10am respectively in Cape Town. Not exactly time for beers and braai. This limits the marketing reach for sponsors to the home teams by and large. Worse still, because of Super Rugby's travel schedule, local fans might have one home game a month that they can either go to the stadium to enjoy or watch at home at a reasonable hour. This has resulted in fans losing their connection to their local team completely and opting to support other sports. This has been seen most extremely in Australia, where rugby union has been on the decline for years. Have I convinced you yet? I guess so. But what's stopping World Rugby getting its act together and committing to a single global calendar? So here are the key sticking points on a single global calendar. To start, there's the north-south divide. In the northern hemisphere, rugby is played throughout the winter, in the rain and the wind. And this coincides with the typical education calendar and gives the northern hemisphere rugby its traditional, often forward-orientated, beat-em-up approach to the game. But in the south, rugby is also played during their autumn-winter, that's our spring, but it's much milder, allowing for free-flowing, quicker, running rugby. Sounds great, but this calendar clashes with the knockout stages of the European Champions Cup and the business end of the domestic seasons up here. But most unthinkable is the fact that the sudden season kicks off during one of the untouchables of rugby, the Six Nations. Daniel Six Nations tournament, self-proclaimed as rugby's greatest tournament, and it is, has become synonymous with February and March. I mean, anyone who's lived in Europe can attest to the joy the Six Nations brings just long enough after Christmas to have recovered from the hangover. Payday has finally arrived, and there's a hint of winter sun about the place. You can almost taste the dew coming from the freshly cooked grass on Lansdowne Road. Alas, it appears if a global calendar were to become a reality, then the Six Nations would need to move, likely trading daffodils for Easter eggs and a later kickoff date. That seems a little late in the year considering the summer internationals, but there we have another problem. There are too many international windows. In any given year, a Northern Hemisphere team will play between 10 and 12 international fixtures at three different points in the year. The Autumn Internationals when the Southern Hemisphere travels up here, the Six Nations, and then the Summer Internationals when we go down there. Whilst I'm all for international rugby, a concession here is likely if we're going to achieve our global season. Another small issue which doesn't get a lot of airtime, but is worth mentioning, is the continued push for promotion and relegation in the Six Nations. If the current international windows were reduced, or at least the number of games, then promotion relegation in the Six Nations would be unthinkable. Imagine Italy or Scotland being relegated. The loss of revenue from the broadcasting deal alone, never mind the participation fees, would be enough to bankrupt the union and revert it back to amateurism. It's that time again, skip pass, where we go down the tunnel and get stitched up after making another big hit. It's just a scratch, but the referee's making a big deal of it, so we're off. Whilst the doc is stitching us up, why don't we let our thoughts wander to a neighbouring game, the NFL in the US. What's notable about the NFL is their short season. Played during the winter months as well, the regular season runs from the beginning of September to mid-January, with the whole thing wrapped up by February with the Super Bowl. That's a 16-game regular season, over 18 weeks. In fact, they've only added a 17th game in the last year. That's significantly less than rugby's 44-game regular season including internationals, which of course the NFL don't have. 
But how does that make sense? With annual revenues of more than $7 billion, the NFL is a commercial behemoth. But how can it generate the kind of money it does with more than half the games of rugby? Well, there are a couple of advantages afforded to it when compared to rugby. Quick caveat here. I'm no NFL expert, so I'm open to correction on all these points. Back in the early 60s, President JFK signed an antitrust exemption law which basically allowed professional football teams to create a cartel, fixing the price of television broadcasting rights. By 1966, when the NFL and AFL merged, the exemption was continued and the NFL had complete power. That year, CBS paid $2 million to show the championship game, which was a lot of money in those days. Side note, the Super Bowl didn't actually come into being until 67 the next year. So with this price-fixing power, the NFL divides up its schedule amongst a couple of premium broadcasters, On Sunday afternoons, CBS takes the American Football Conference or AFC games and Fox the National Football Conference games. When there are inter-conference games, the broadcaster of the away team gets to show the game. The Sunday night game is broadcast by NBC, with Thursday night football belonging to the NFL Network, a paid TV station owned by the NFL. Finally, ESPN hold the rights to Monday night football and have built their own hype around the less convenient time slot. They've made this show so popular that ESPN owner Disney have agreed an estimated $2.6 billion per year for the rights on a 12-year deal to 2033. In turn, these broadcasters can sell advertising space at a premium because of the audiences they attract. Think about it, how much advertising did you see the last time you watched an American football game? Even if you've ever seen the Super Bowl, you'd know how many advertising breaks there are. With the amount of ball and play time an average of between only 11 and 19 minutes, versus rugby's 35 minutes, it's easy to see where there's room for all those TV ads. In reality, a 60-minute game of NFL can take more than three hours to complete. It's commercially brilliant, albeit a little dull. You can see the math starting to add up, right? Then there's the expenditure side. Like rugby in many jurisdictions, the NFL enjoys tax-free exemption. In the United States, the IRS actually expanded the definition of non-profit entities to include professional football leagues. Bit of an oxymoron that. It's estimated that the NFL avoids paying at least $10 million per year in taxes from this exemption, a position they defend by insisting that it's the teams that are for-profit and duly pay their taxes. Another expenditure workaround comes in the form of local subsidies to fund new stadiums and infrastructure that goes with them. It's thought that as many as 20, maybe even 30 stadiums have been funded in this way. Famously, the city of Cincinnati raised local sales taxes in 1996 to build and maintain stadiums for their team, the Bengals, as well as the city's baseball team. The increased tax revenue wasn't enough to cover the annual $43 million needed for maintenance. Unbelievable as the NFL sit pretty. Whilst their model wouldn't be directly replicable or welcome in rugby, there's still merit in thinking about how they market their limited product, producing billions of revenue in the process. We might be able to learn a thing or two from our Yankee friends here. Anyway, for now, let's get back to the global calendar. So what's actually been done about it? Who's working on the global calendar idea and what are the proposals so far? Well, fear not, World Rugby are on the case. Having enlisted the support of a specialist crack team of investigators and data scientists and with the use of a magic eight ball, they're committed to pushing this issue down the tracks as far as they possibly can. Well, at least until 2024 by all accounts. But seriously... There is a working group on this and one of the main changes we are likely to see is the moving or merging of the summer and autumn international windows. Bringing them together to create a more significant international window does a couple of things. If held in late September and October, it would occupy the same space as the Rugby World Cup, which could take its place every four years. 
turn that into some kind of cup or shield and it would create a more meaningful competition, attracting fresh interest from spectators, sponsors and broadcasters alike, with the spoils shared amongst all of the competing unions. You could then guarantee a straight run of games from November to July for the club game, save for the untouchable Six Nations of course. Actually, even if you move the Six Nations to April-May, this would coincide with the Rugby Championship, which would also need to be played earlier in the year to give the new international window its own space. This would also keep the summer free for Lions Tour when that comes around every odd four years. Seems like we're on to a winner on the international side, but what about the domestic club game? In many ways this could be and is in the process of being improved. The newly revamped URC or United Rugby Championship consisting of the Celtic, Italian and South African clubs has organised itself specifically to avoid clashes with the international windows and the European Champions Cup. A task made much easier by having a new stakeholder at the table in CBC. CBC are the private equity company who have bought into rugby in various forms over the past year. Their stake in Six Nations Rugby and the Autumn International Series helped to drive the new URC fixture list for the better. But less about CBC for now, we'll come back to them. If there was one criticism of the new URC layout, it's the lack of European games before the Autumn Series. Usually they're higher quality games and allow players to get themselves test ready before joining their national teams. On the other side, for players not in their respective international sites, they go into the start of the European season with little to no rugby. In the Southern Hemisphere then, we've already discussed how Japan are staying on their own, much like France in the Northern Hemisphere, and South Africa have traded the lines of latitude for the more sensible alignment of time zone with the Celts and Italians. So that leaves us with the Aussies and Kiwis. Having been abandoned by the box, they've banded together to create a new 12-team league consisting of five teams from both nations, whom we all know well, and the other two additions coming from Fiji, the Fijian Drua, who've been competing in Australia's National Rugby Championship up until now, and a brand new team of Samoan Tongan origin, called Moana Pacifica. Moana Pacifica are a brand new outfit who've been granted an unconditional Super Rugby license and have only played one game since their inception in 2020. That was against the Maori All Blacks, which they lost 28-21. They were coached that day by legendary All Black Tana Umaga, captained by prop Michael Alatoa, who's since joined Leinster. But one noticeable exclusion from the Super Rugby lineout this time round is fan favourite Argentina's Jaguares. Los Jaguares were an exciting addition to Super Rugby. A club side made up of mostly Argentine internationals, they rewrote the book on what Argentine rugby could be. Gone were the days of the lethargic Latinos mauling until the cows came home, or fiery first five eights purposely not making 10 metres with the kickoff to concede a midfield scrum. Instead, the Jaguares embraced free flowing, devil may care rugby, high skill, high risk rugby, and they doubled down on that strategy until they got it right. It was this exact approach which had Ireland gasping for breath in the 2015 Rugby World Cup quarter final as Argentina ran rings around them. This approach eventually earned the Jaguaris a place in the 2019 Super Rugby Final, only missing out on glory to New Zealand's unstoppable Crusaders. Unfortunately for them, there's no room in Super Rugby for the Argentinians, and so they're left isolated. The loss of revenue paired with COVID hardships has seen the management allow players to find alternative clubs overseas. There seems to be little hope for the future of the club unless they can join a league, ideally closer to their own time zone. This challenge has an obvious solution. They should either join up with the established Major League Rugby in the US, an equivalent distance of South Africa flying to Europe in the URC, perhaps with a Canadian franchise too, or else they stay working with the American nations in their tournament featuring teams from Brazil, Chile and up-and-coming Uruguay, the former offering the highest standard of rugby to test themselves against. 
I don't want you to think I dislike the Argies and want to relegate them to just the Americas, but there's a lot to be said for local regional competitions. Needless to say, scheduling is easier, and agreeing broadcasting deals in fewer time zones benefits everyone, especially if you can sell exclusive rights to the product, but also local rivalries are always more exciting to watch. We see this all over rugby, whether it's Australia and New Zealand across the Tasman Sea, or Biarritz Bayron for the village bragging rights in France, local derbies make sport. Rugby League probably has one of the most exciting derbies in its annual best of three state of origin games between Queensland and New South Wales. Going in its current form since the early 1980s, players represent the state where they first played senior rugby. A clever idea, it bisects the Rugby League calendar in Australia and provides a fantastic spectacle. Oh, there's nothing better than getting one up on the old enemy, which raises the question of why there's not an Anglo-Celtic league. A British and Irish championship or something to that effect. You'd have probably one of, if not the highest quality competition in world rugby, and that would attract a lot of eyeballs and sponsorship, and add more to the Lions brand and team selection when that comes around every four years. It'd be great to see rugby come together as a sport to fix this most basic of issues. The benefit for the unions and the clubs, more importantly, the benefit for the players are obvious. We could break the vicious cycle of chasing more money for more games, needing more players or risking the ones we have. Despite CBC trying to act like Adam Smith's invisible hand, World Rugby cannot forget their old crusty ways. Their answer to the problem is to create more games via Club World Cup, which I think would be exciting, but needs a proper think through to make it viable for the players. Their other response focuses on introducing new versions of the game to make it more attractive in new markets vis-a-vis a new Rugby X format. I'm a simple Irishman, and for me it comes down to Anradisanov is Eintok, which is Irish for what's rare is wonderful. Less rugby is not a bad thing. In fact, it would make us all appreciate the game a little bit more. But that's it for this week's edition of The Rep. Next week we're coming back to CBC as promised, and we're going to delve into their growing relationship they have with rugby. We're going to break down the deal they've made with the Six Nations, and we'll also look at how they've accelerated that trend of private equity in rugby. So until the next one, don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and give us a rating or review and share with your mates. Be sound. This will help us reach more like-minded rugger heads who want to see the best for our game. Till then, go well.